In the end, technology magnifies human abilities. Technology lets us all do more. Pick any time in the past that you want to pick, like 30 years ago, 50, 100, 1,000. And then I want you to think of any measure of progress, and that can be life expectancy, the status of women, self-government, whatever you want to pick. And I can guarantee you things are better right now than they were then because we've learned a trick. We take knowledge and we use it to multiply what we are able to do. Welcome to the Art of Humanity. I'm your host, Jessica Ann. This is my podcast where you can listen for fresh perspectives with artists, leaders, authors, and your favorite entrepreneurs. You can explore creativity and consciousness, evolve your business with the art of humanity. Now, here's this week's episode. This season focuses on creativity. We are now on the doorstep of a fourth change from two key technologies, AI and robotics. How did we get to this point? My guest today answers this question. He has a book called The Fourth Age. His name is Byron Reese, and he makes the case that technology has reshaped humanity just three times in history. 100,000 years ago, we harnessed fire, which led to language. 10,000 years ago, we developed agriculture, which led to cities and warfare. 5,000 years ago, we invented the wheel and writing, which led us to the nation state. According to an article on HBR.org, the wise corporate leader will realize that post-technology trauma falls along two lines. One, how to integrate the new technology into the workflow, and two, how to cope with feelings that the new technology is somehow the enemy. Without dealing with both, even the most automated workplace could easily have undercurrents of anxiety, if not anger. In this interview, my guest has a lot to say about technology and the future of humanity, and they're mostly all good things. In this episode, I talk with Byron Reese about why most people in Silicon Valley think they're machines, and why this is a good thing, the meaning of artificial intelligence, the difference between narrow AI, the type that spots your spam in your inbox, and general intelligence. We also talk about how to adopt technology responsibly why everyone is going to be vegetarian in the future, and if we've reached a saturation point with our intelligence, and if so, what are the precautions we should be taking? Technology magnifies human abilities, and in turn, it allows us to be more creative. I'm so excited to bring you this episode. If you like this podcast, please review it in the iTunes store. Let's go to the show. Today, I'm so thrilled to have with me Byron Reese. With 25 years as a successful tech entrepreneur, with multiple IPOs and exits along the way, Byron Reese is uniquely suited to comment on the transformative effect of technology on the workplace and on society at large. He writes books that explore the wonders of the world of tomorrow and delights audiences around the world with his vivid and energetic presentations on the future of work and life. Byron, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. So I had a chance to check out your latest book, The Fourth Age, Smart Robots, Conscious Computers, and the Future of Humanity. Wow, what an awesome title. One thing that stood out to me was your message. It's so different. Um, So your new book provides extraordinary background information on how we got to this point and how, rather than what, we should think about the topics we'll soon all be facing. Some of those topics include (laughs) machine consciousness, automation, employment, 
creative computers, radical life extension, artificial life, AI ethics, the future of warfare, super intelligence, and the implications of extreme prosperity. So there's a lot to unpack there, but your book really provides a framework by which we can all understand and act on the issues of the fourth age and how they'll transform humanity. So I'd love to hear a little bit more of your story. Uh, Take me back to the beginning of how you first got interested in AI and the future of humanity. Well, I've always been interested in technology, and I love history, and I, I kind of just started by asking the question, how, what is technology, and how has it, how has it really shaped or changed humanity? And, and I think there have been three times, and, and technology, if you kind of just break it down, are, are techniques we use to magnify human ability. You, you can move more bricks with a forklift than you can with, you know, your, your back. And, and so I started looking at kind of like how technology has had an impact on humanity. And I think there have been three times in the past where new technologies have come along that have been so profound, so earth shattering, that they changed the trajectory of the planet forever. The first of these, uh, and I won't, I won't go through all of them, but the first of the three was when we got fire. And when we got fire, we started cooking our food. And when we cooked our food, we ate a bunch more and we grew our brains to be big. And that gave us a new technology, which was language. And that's our, that's our, our, our great ability as a species. We can, kind of, we can kind of coordinate our actions. And so, you know, 10 people are now suddenly a match for one mammoth because we can, hey, go over there, all that. So language changed us. And then then we got agriculture, which made us settle down, which gave us the city, which gave us the division of labor, which gave us warfare. And that changed us. Like agriculture changed what we ate, right? Division of labor gave us prosperity and money and all these other things. And the other one was writing and the wheel, which came at the same time. And those changed us. And I started thinking about artificial intelligence and robots. And I was really curious what their impact was going to be. And, and just talking about AI at first. What I found was something kind of, I think, interesting, which everybody, I'm sure, listening um, can probably relate to what I'm about to say, which is there's a bunch of people who are really afraid of AI, who think it's going to, you know, like Elon Musk says, uh, we may not survive it, and we may just be the bootloaders for the new AI, and and, and we are only the top of this planet because we're the smartest. And once AI is smarter than us, it's going to be on top. And Stephen Hawking, who said he was worried about it, it may be our last invention. So you hear that. And then you hear other people, a lot of times the practitioners, who think that is just ridiculous. That is just ridiculous. They say things like worrying about that kind of stuff is like worrying about overpopulation on Mars. And that's that's what set me off to write this book is I was like, why, all of these are smart people. Why do they have such different viewpoints about, about these questions? And what I learned in writing the book was that it isn't that they know different things. It isn't that they have special or secret knowledge. It's that they have different beliefs about what humans are and what the brain is and what consciousness is and what is the nature of reality and all these uh, non-technical things. And because they have different beliefs about those sorts of things, they come to different conclusions about AI. So I really wanted to take the AI and robot and jobs and all those questions apart 
and really get at what are the underlying assumptions. And I never say what I think in the book. The book's not like me just being another guy with an opinion telling you what you should think. The book is all about why do some people think this and some people think that. And it works through a series of questions that when you come out of the end, you'll be like, aha, okay, I, I get it. I think this because of this. And I understand why I may disagree with some super genius somewhere. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I want to hone in on something you mentioned about, you know, these experts all having disagreements about the future of humanity via AI, you know, Elon Musk and Hawking. um, You know, you mentioned that they have different beliefs. So they're not wrong. There's not an expert that's wrong or right. But it's really through the lens of their own experience that dictates their research, which then transforms the knowledge. And this this in really combines consciousness, our human consciousness with technology. And what you did so effectively in this book is use your knowledge to kind of outline everything to show that, you know, there is no right or wrong, but boom, this is where we are in the current state of humanity and how we're moving forward. Um, so it really reminds me of, you know, just an intersection and a, f- a fusion of consciousness at, at the core. So you mentioned that, you know, experts disagree so intensely about this, but, you know, you don't really form an opinion, you mentioned. So you're not one guy with an opinion. Why do you feel the need to not have an opinion on on this for your book? Well, I, I agree with what you just said, but with one clarification, there's definitely a right and wrong. I mean, computers will either become conscious or they will not. Uh, and so there's just no agreement on, on, on what's going to happen. But someday this is all going to shake out and there will be – Elon Musk is either right in the end or he's wrong. We should either be very afraid or we shouldn't. The reason I didn't – so here's, here's the first question I, I think people should ask, which is are you – what are you? What are you? And I'll give you three choices. The first choice is you are a machine and nothing in you is uh, – everything in you can be explained with physics and chemistry. You're a, you're a contained chemical reaction, a big bag of electrical impulses and chemicals, and that is the beginning and the end of what you are. That's for all the robots listening to this. <laughs> well, that's what most people in Silicon Valley believe is they believe they are machines. And because they believe they are machines – it stands to reason you can make a mechanical person, and you can, if you can ever make a mechanical person, you can make a better mechanical person, and a better, and a better, and better. And that's the beginning and end of why they believe we should be af- afraid of AI. We'll come back to that. Okay. The second choice you have is you are an animal. In other words, your body may be mechanistic, but you have maybe life, and and because you're alive, there's something non-materialistic about that. There's something beyond sheer physics that, that give you a spark of life. And then a third choice is you're a human being. And of course, we're all humans, but I mean something a little different. Yes, you have a mechanical body. Yes, you have life. But there's something about you that is different, that sets humans apart. It may be that you have a soul. It may be that you are have consciousness, that you experience the world. It may be that you have a self. It may be that you have strong emergence. I mean, there are all kinds of, of special ingredients it could be. If you, And most people, by the way, believe – I find that most people believe the latter. We on, on my website, we have like a little quiz, and I'd say 85% of the people that take it say that that's what they are. They're, 
They're not a machine. So the reason I don't ever, and so what I try to do is say, if you think you're a machine, here is what logically follows. If you think you're an animal, here's what logically follows. And if you believe humans are something different, then here's what logically follows. The reason I never weigh in is it doesn't matter what I think you are. Like you already have an opinion about what you are. My job is just to kind of walk through the implications of that opinion, but not to say, oh, you're a blank. Like you, you already know what you are. I'm, and that's why what, what I think, I don't ever make it a secret. I mean, I host a podcast about AI, but, but it isn't, it is not in the least bit material. And, and I would just say that most of the people on my podcast who are AI people believe they are machines and they believe you can make a mechanical mind. And that's what, what a general artificial intelligence is. Wow. So let's unpack that a little bit. So the majority of the people that you interview, you mentioned uh, Silicon Valley is generally the theme of, you know, the location of people who believe they are machines. Do they think that this is a good thing for the future of humanity? And what are some traits that characterize these quasi machines? So that's a fantastically interesting question. I find that most people I guess it's important to think about that there are really two unrelated things that people mean when they say AI. And it's really important kind of to keep them in separate buckets. And, and, and I'll, I'll come right back to your question here. So the first thing is the kind of AI we know how to do is called narrow AI. And that is an AI that knows how to do one thing really well. It can spot spam in your inbox. It can route you through traffic. It can do one thing, but don't ask it to balance your checkbook, what you should get your spouse for Christmas. You know, it does one thing. And that is what we know how to do now. And most people are very bullish about that. They say, we're going to use that to increase human productivity. We're going to find all kinds of cures to diseases. We're going to figure out ways to feed the world. And I would say of the hundred guests I've had, they're all maybe with the exception of five or something that I'm not thinking of right now, they're all optimistic about that technology. If you think about it, all it is, all that kind of AI is, is it, is it makes us all smarter. It, it, it takes, we get to take the experience of other people, the data of, that other people have generated and it makes us smarter. And it would be, you would have to be somewhat, there would be an interesting viewpoint to say, no, making everybody smarter, that's a bad thing. That's bad for people. Because then you have to say, well, it would be great if everybody woke up tomorrow with 10 IQ points shaved off. That would be better. And, and, and that doesn't, I don't think, make a lot of sense. Then there's this second kind of AI. It's unrelated, probably. It has nothing to do with the first kind. And that's a general intelligence. That's what you see in the movies. That's Commander Data off Star Trek. That is uh, C-3PO out of Star Wars. And that's an AI that knows... It can figure anything out, like anything a human can do, it can probably figure out. It it can make a great cup of coffee and then it can, you know, get out of a locked room and then it can do this, it can do that, it can do that. That's a technology nobody knows how to make. Now, first of all, that's the technology people who are, quote, scared of it, that's what they're frightened of. That someday we'll make an AI that is as smart as us, then 18 months later, it'll be twice as smart than 18 months later, twice and twice and twice and twice and twice until it's a million times, a billion times, a trillion times smarter than us. And then it probably doesn't even understand we exist. Like 
you know, any more than we are aware of microbes. That particular technology may not be possible. That would be a very minority view. So you take 100 AI people on my on my show and, and 90 of them would say it's possible. And then they would be split on whether that's a good thing or a bad thing for people. Um, but there are people who say it isn't possible. If, if you don't believe you're a machine, then the only general intelligence we know of are people. And if we aren't machines, then it, it isn't certain that you can build a mechanical person. People, people have abilities that we don't know how to get computers to do. Right now, if you want to teach a computer to, to identify cats... You get a lot of cat photos and you feed them in and the computer learns what a cat looks like. You can train a person with one piece of data. You c- I could make up an alien that looks really weird. I could draw it on a piece of paper and then I could show you 50 photographs. And, and in some of them, it's, it's a cartoon and in some of them, it's photorealistic. And in some of them, I have a person in a suit. And you're like, there it is, there it is, there it is. If it's underwater, there it is. If it's half behind a tree, there it is. And and that's something we do really well. It's called transfer learning. We take knowledge from one area, we apply it to another. And we don't know how to get computers to do that. And there are all kinds of things like that we don't know how to teach computers to do. Now, the last thing I'll say about that general intelligence, that thing we don't know how to build, but that if we build it, people, some people are very much afraid of it. Um. When you ask people, when, when do you think we're going to get it? The range of answers you get is five to 500 years. And that isn't terribly useful. Like if you, if you drop your shirt off at the dry cleaner and they say it'll be ready in five to 500 days, it's like, well, that doesn't help me a lot. But if you, if you took kind of the average, they would say it's 20 to 25 years out. Now, the interesting thing, it's always been 20 to 25 years out. You know, 20 years ago, it was 20 years out. And so nobody, and, and the trick is because nobody knows how to build it yet, or nobody has shown us they know how to build it. And, and that, that is the thing. So the simple AI, by the way, the simple AI is the one people are afraid is, are going to take all the jobs. And we can talk about that in a minute. But overall, people are positive about it. The general AI, the really smart one, that's the one that, um, we may not be able to build, and we don't know what it would do. But it's kind of like it's kind of like when my cat leaves a dead mouse on the back porch. It the cat has no way to know I don't want that mouse. In fact, everything the cat knows, I should want that mouse. Um, it's the same thing. We would know. We would know more. Be able to understand how that general intelligence thinks then the cat can understand how we think. It's it's like an, an alien thing. Let me just stop you there real quick. In terms of that analogy with the cat and the mouse, okay, so that's like an animal, right? So in terms of going back to your original question, what are you? You're either a machine, an animal, or a human being. That's an animal, you know, it's not really fully understanding the human needs, um, which is two steps removed from the machine, knowing what we might need. So how do we explain the fact that humans want to become more machine-like? Why is that considered a good thing? You mentioned that a lot of the people that you interview on your podcasts want to be more mechanical. Well, it's more that they believe they are mechanical. Because if, if we are machine, so here's what they would say. Uh, you have a brain and uh, it, it obeys the laws of physics. Like it isn't magic. It, it, you've got neurons and they obey the laws of physics. And if someday we made 
a mechanical neuron and we put enough of them together, that would be a mechanical brain and it would do everything you could do. Therefore, they reason, of course you can make a general intelligence. In fact, you are just a smart machine and therefore we can make smart machines. And the benefit of making smart machines, they would say, is that they're smart, but then they're going to get smarter and smarter and smarter and smarter and they're going to help us solve all these problems we have and they're going to they're going to make the world better. It would be like, you know, a person has an average IQ of 100. What if you made a machine that had an IQ of 1,000 and then you had a machine that had an IQ of 10,000? What would it be able to do? And so they, they have hopes that the machine would, would, would have so much intelligence that it would, would be able to – we would be able to use it to accomplish all kinds of goals. It isn't that they want to be machines. It's that they already believe that they are machines. Got it. Okay. Yeah, that makes a little bit more sense. Um, I I totally understand that line of thinking and in terms of we just keep getting better and better, <laughs> you know, just add another zero to our IQ and we'll just get smarter. Um, and I am totally on board with that line of thinking. At the same time, you know, I just want to be a little bit of a devil's advocate here and keep in mind that a lot of my clients are in AI technology. I love this space. But just being the devil's advocate here, um, if we were to not necessarily want to keep improving our IQ, um, and you know, most people say that having a higher IQ is better than not, but at the same time, have we reached a saturation point with our intelligence? If you look across the globe, you see that you know the reality is we're not really in much of a better place than we were 10, 20, 30 years ago. You know, we still have tons of issues, chaos affecting the world. Not to be too um, pessimistic here, I'm, I'm an eternal optimist, but the reality is that our human reality isn't that much better for the amount of technology that we've embraced. So have we reached a saturation point in our human intelligence? And if so, what are the precautions that we should be taking? I probably look at things a little differently than that. I mean, I believe that in the end, technology magnifies human abilities. Technology lets us all do more. Technology is why we have a higher standard. You know, I don't work harder than my great-great-grandparents did, but I live a much more lavish life than they did. Why? Because of technology, because an hour of my time yields so much more than an hour of theirs. We've used technology to lengthen lifespan, to cure diseases, to cool warm buildings and heat cold ones, to to keep people from having to do back-breaking toil every day. I don't have to haul water up from a well at the bottom of a hill. I don't have to, to, to wring clothes out to wash them. Um, I have access to the sum total of human knowledge in my hand. I can talk to anybody around the world as if, as if they're in the room with me. I can connect to people in ways I couldn't before. I would challenge um, people to do a thought experiment. I would say this. Pick any time in the past that you want to pick, like 30 years ago, 50, 100, 1,000, 5,000, like pick any time you want. And then in your mind, spin the globe around and pick a place, any, any place you want. And then I want you to think of any measure of progress, real progress, and that can be life expectancy, um, infant mortality, um, the status of women, self-government, standard of living, lifespan, whatever you want to pick. And I can guarantee you, by almost any measure, any place in the world, by almost any time, things are better right now than they were then. We have less hungry people. 
than we've ever had. We have less people living in abject poverty than we've ever had. Um, and, and all the numbers, all the numbers I think are moving in the right direction. And why? Because we've learned a trick. And I think the trick is we take knowledge and we use it to multiply what we are able to do. It used to be it took 90% of all of us to grow our food. And that was it. That was the beginning and the end of the day. 90% of us have to work just to eat. And now in the West, it takes 2% of us to do it. And why, why did we do that? We, well, how did we free all those people up? We freed them up because of technology. We, we empower people. You know, we make, um, we make iTunes and all of a sudden everybody starts making music and you make YouTube and all of a sudden everybody starts shooting videos and you make, uh, you can leave reviews online and all of a sudden everybody has an opinion. Everybody wants to be heard. They make, they invent blogs and a hundred million people start one. They make podcasts and millions of people start them. And, and all of that is, is because technology gives people agency and it gives them power and it gives them a voice. And, and so I'm, I'm unquestionably a fan of it. And so I would say, yes, I believe we are vastly better off because of technology. And, and again, I, I, I don't believe, I, 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 I think ignorance is kind of the great enemy and giving people knowledge, you know, knowledge is power and giving people knowledge, giving them access to information that in the end is empowering to people and technology does that as well. So, yeah, that's a great answer. And thank you for uh, helping to put that into context. Uh, that's super helpful. I guess it brings up the point about ethics um, of AI and regulating morality, because if we are continuing to advance and we're heading in this direction, you know, the functions of AI have changed our lives so drastically that the fastest route is always at our fingertips. We can always create content. We have a chatbot to answer all of our questions. But it also raises the need for honest dialogue about how we can adopt these technologies responsibly. So how do we enforce human checks and balances on these machines as we continue to evolve? Well, that's a fantastically interesting question. And you're right. When you invent metallurgy, people can make swords or plowshares, right? I mean, you can – metallurgy itself is neutral and what you do with it. Um, in the end, the reason that we and, – and what you want in the end is for more people to want to make plowshares than to make swords. And the good news is – the good news is the fact that we have had progress for five or 10,000 years – says that most people want to create and, and relatively few want to destroy. In fact, it's easier to destroy than create. And the fact that you have progress means vast, many more people are building every day than the number of people who are trying to tear down. And we do that because of something called civilization. And that's another trick we learn. In fact, those are the only two tricks I think that kind of matter. Technology, we learn to multiply what we're able to do. And through civilization, we learn how to get along better. And that is what um, we, have, we have done. And therefore, we have invented human rights. And we've invented trial by jury. And we've invented habeas corpus. And we've invented rule of law. And, and, and a thousand other things that, that make life more gentle and more fair and more accessible to more people. And so I think that's our natural inclination. And a few people uh, stand on the outside and try to tear that down. Now, you're right that the new technologies raise new questions. And I, I and the way as a species we've worked through that uh, is through trial and error for the most part. We try things and progressively learn what works and we progressively make 
make progress over time. I mean, the barbarity of the ancient world uh, staggers the mind. And, and I could tell you just the most horrific stories. And the interesting thing about them is they weren't considered horrific at the time. They were just considered, that was just life. That was just how things were. And now, you know, we have, now people worry, you know, if the chicken that they're eating for dinner was raised humanely. In, 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 in the 12th century France, they had a pastime called cat burning, which I won't go into detail, but you can just imagine. I mean, just oh, yeah, please don't. <laughs> think about how we got from there to here. You know, there was a time in the past, 70, 80,000 years ago, when, when humans were down to maybe a thousand mating pairs. I mean, we were an endangered species and we were barbarians. And somehow, somehow, and it took all of our energy just to survive, and one disease could have wiped us all out. And somehow, we managed to get through that, and we managed to invent and make a better world and make a more gentle world and create the world law and build all of this wonderful stuff around us. And, and that's a great thing. And I think technology is going to help us project that into the future. And, and finally, like all the utopias people have dreamed about, I find, I think, the reason we couldn't achieve them before, because there just wasn't enough of the good stuff. Like, there just wasn't enough medicine for everybody, and there wasn't enough food for everybody, and there wasn't enough leisure for everybody. There wasn't enough of education for, for everybody. And and how do you overcome all of that? You overcome all of that by multiplying what people are able to do through technology. And I think that all the utopias that people have dreamed about in the past, we're going to be able to reach because we've learned this trick. So let's go back. You mentioned the concept vegetarianism. You write in your book that everyone is likely to be a vegetarian in the future, a vegan, actually. This will come about due to artificial meats being cheaper, tastier, healthier, and more environmentally friendly. So I guess my question is to you is that do you see it more as a function of our brains and logic um, rather than having empathy for animals? No. I mean, to start with... Um I'm not. A, I'm neither a vegetarian nor a vegan. So I didn't write those words because I have an axe to grind, and I think everybody, everybody's going to see the the error of their ways in the future. So I didn't write it for that reason at all. But you're entirely right. You're entirely right. I think that um, that as empathy expands, first. You only care about your family and then about your tribe and then about people that look like you and then people that live near you. And, you know, that circle gets bigger and bigger. And now it does start to include animals. We have laws against cruelty to animals. And in the United States, you know, finally cockfighting is outlawed in all 50 states. It didn't happen that long ago. But um, when, when people – so I do think that's exactly right. As the circle of empathy increases – uh, it will extend more to animals. I think that that's very true. That being said, I think the reason the world of the future will be vegan is is a simple one, which, like I said, is all of those foods are going to be cheaper and better. Imagine if you could get the best steak you've ever had in your entire life for 99 cents. And like every bite of it, it's like, oh my gosh, that's incredible. And it, it happens to be grown in a laboratory. You see, raising meat is highly inefficient like think about how, what you do you you like take a cow and then you feed it for two years and it you know eats all this grass and lives this whole life and then eventually 
you know, it eats and sucks all the sunlight and eats all this grass and grows. And I mean, it's a highly inefficient process. So in the future, when you can just make the best steak in the world and it's just grown, it's not really an animal, but it looks like it and tastes like it. And it's 99 cents. And oh, by the way, it's healthy. I'd shout out to Beyond Meat. I just got, um, I buy it in bulk. It's so good. Um, <laughs> this is not a sponsored ad. <laughs> no, no. I tried, I tried the burger at, so at, at, at ANW. And, oh uh, and uh, yeah, it was, you, you could taste it and you could say, yep, that's definitely heading in the right direction. Like someday. It's beets. So, they put beets in their burger, so it actually looks like it's bleeding, but it's fully yeah. vegetarian. So it's one of the best things I've ever discovered. So I feel I, the I, need I'll to tell everybody about it. The smell of the burger down, though, that's what was, I think, missing. Like, the taste, they're getting really close, but it didn't quite smell like a burger. But but again, it's all going to come out in the wash. Yeah, if you grill it, it does, believe it or not. Oh, does it? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So it's my... I love it. I've been, you know, I'm not 100% vegetarian either, but um, I definitely don't consume red meat. And when I do want that craving, I go to Beyond Meat for their burgers because um, it's literally like the best thing. It's better than a real burger. Well, I hope they send you like 40 pounds in the mail now. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> I buy them by the carton anyway, so I love it. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, thanks so much for sharing that perspective. Um, it's really, really fascinating. And I love how you've really dissected everything um, and explained it in your book. Um, I actually did take that test that's on your website um, that you mentioned earlier. Will a robot take over your job? And I scored a 20 out of 100 on the scale, um, where a zero is a, is a job that a robot can never do, and 100 is one that will certainly be replaced by automation. Um, wow. Yeah. And I, I just, as I was taking it, I was kind of blown away by um, – how many questions made it almost seem like we were still in this industrial revolution that we were in like years ago? Like I was wondering how many people are still in that. And, and I guess we've come full circle since that industrial revolution um, that, you know, machine like the factory workers and stuff like that, because a lot of those questions were, you know, you used examples of like a factory worker or, you know, someone that has the job of a machine. So are we evolving more towards that emotional human element in at the same time as we are um, embracing AI and technology, or are they running in opposite directions of each other? That's a fantastic question. And I would say it this way. There's, there's a group of jobs that a machine could do. And um, if, don't, don't worry about whether we've built a machine to do it. Just imagine any job you want that you could imagine a machine doing window washer or, um, you know, anything. If you make a human being do that job, there's a word for that. It is dehumanizing, dehumanizing. And the reason it's dehumanizing is if a machine can do it, nothing, it requires nothing that makes a human a human. And so those are, those are the bad jobs. Those are the jobs that, uh, over time we want to get, get rid of because those are jobs that like, require nothing that makes you a human. Um, and so I think that's really what the trend is, is that everything a machine can do, we're going to build machines to do. And that will free up people to do jobs only people can do. And, and then, you know, people say, well, are there enough of those jobs? And it's like, there's an infinite number of jobs. That's kind of the whole point. A job isn't there isn't like some finite bucket of jobs. And if you get robots to do some of them, there are just fewer jobs. Jobs 
are created the instant you take something and put labor and into it and make something worth more and whatever more it's worth that's your wage and so you take a lump of clay and turn it into a vase you just made a job and whatever that vase is worth that's your wage and so there is no shortage of things if i can look out my window right now and see a hundred things that could be done that would be great to have done that aren't because what we really have is a shortage of people like there's I think everybody can agree, I think, that there's more to be done in the world than there are people to do it. And so we kind of have to prioritize that some things get done and some things don't. The minute we make machines do more and more of it, people are freed up to do all of the rest. And so the the kinds of things in the test that only people can do, some of them are very boring, like uh, mobility-related things. Like a robot plumber would be very hard to make because every house is different. It goes into every bathroom is different, every faucet like that's hard robots do a bad job navigating and they're not waterproof either so <laughs> that's right and th- but there are all these other jobs like that require empathy uh outrage uh the personal touch creativity and all of those things and those too are things that i don't believe machines can do you're going to be able to make a machine pretend to have empathy uh but that doesn't mean the machine ever does because you know in the end in the end, I think it all boils down to consciousness. Now, people say we don't know what it is, and that that isn't actually the case. Everybody kind of agrees on the definition of it. It is, it is your experience of the world. It's the fact that you feel warmth, and a computer measures temperature. It's the taste of food, and it's it's the entire experience of being you. Mm-hmm. And a machine doesn't have any of that. I mean, you can put a sensor on a computer and it can measure temperature. You can program it to say, ouch, 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 if it gets over 500 degrees. But nobody thinks the computer feels pain when that temperature hits 500 degrees. So whatever that difference is. So what people don't agree on is how does consciousness come about? And I think consciousness is tied into intelligence deeply, that it's how we change our focus and it's how we experience and how we process the world and all these other things. And and I do not, I am unconvinced a machine can be conscious. I really am. I, I'm unconvinced. If It seems a stretch to me to say we have these brains that we don't really know how they work. We have these minds uh, that, which are all the things the brain does that are kind of cool and special. And we don't know how that comes about. And we have consciousness where we experience the world. Yeah, we don't know how any of that works, but we can build it. We're going to be able to build it in a machine. And and that is, only makes sense if you start with the assumption that we are machines to begin with. Mm. And so that's kind of where it's at. So I think jobs that require experiencing the world, interacting with the world in ways. Computers only know one trick. They do math really, really well. They can move ones and zeros around in memory. To, to my way of thinking, that, that does not eventually – they don't get faster and faster and faster and faster and faster, and then tomorrow they're you. That, that They are just something very different. We are not computational machines, I don't think. I would have to agree with you there, especially because I love creativity and I love just exploring how consciousness fits into it all. And um, one of the things that you did bring up was that creativity cannot be replicated by machines or robots. And that's a good thing, you argue. Uh, so how do you foresee, you know, if machines are taking over all of the you know, mechanical roles that we have, do you foresee that humanity will continue to get more creative? 
That's a great question. I don't know that I thought of that. You know, when we developed writing, our memories went to pot. But before we had writing, our memories were vastly better. In a world where you can't write anything down, if you wanted to remember something, you better remember it. We know of a Roman general who knew the name of all 25,000 of his troops and the names of all of their families. And, and, and he wasn't he wasn't preserved in history because he had a great memory. He was just that's just noted that he was he was a nice guy that he remembered all these names. Mm-hmm. Um, and and Plato even said, you know, when writing is not a system for remembering, it's only a system for reminding. And so it is true that technology changes us and that and and our mental abilities are like muscles. And so I guess it would stand to reason that if 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 we all, if more of us have creative jobs, then we will over time become more creative. Now, again, the Silicon Valley types will say, I know you think you're special and creativity is special, but it isn't. They would say, look, um, they can make classical music that um, a pro can tell isn't Mozart, but a general audience can't. They can, um, they can take photographs and turn them into Van Gogh paintings. And But the question is to my mind, is is that creativity or, or does that merely simulate creativity? It, it seems to me hard to know how you end up with Lin-Manuel, um, how you end up with Hamilton, how you end up with Harry Potter, how you end up with Banksy's graffiti, you know, even if they can make cheap sounding Mozart now. So uh, I don't I don't know the mechanism by which humans are creative. But I think it's more complicated than um, than than some people think. That being said, there are a lot of people in the AI space who say uh, a computer will write a best-selling novel in a matter of years. Interesting. So, yeah, going back to your point about what um, you know the purpose of writing is, and I want to I want to unpack that other comment you just mentioned that a computer will write a novel too. That's fascinating point that you bring up. Um, but going back to the point of actually writing, um, you know, one of my favorite quotes about writing is by uh, A. Nai Nin. She wrote, we write to taste life twice in the moment and in retrospect. So you have to wonder if consciousness is almost one of the main points of writing as well. It's not only just to remember, but it's to experience the emotions that went along with that memory. So that that's kind of my take on why we write. And, you know, it really up levels our creativity in ways that we really um, might not explore. You know, we might just think of it only as being mechanical, but it's also involves it also involves a consciousness aspect to the act of writing as well. That's exciting. And it's uh, unique and different, I think, for our future. So, um, yeah, I, I love that quote, and I just wanted to loop that into our conversation, too. I, I like that, too. I mean, I, I love that quote as well. I, another, another writing one that I think is germane is Hemingway said, you know, there's nothing to writing. All you do is sit down in front of a typewriter and bleed. And, <laughs> uh, and that's, that's true. I mean, like, there was an, in, in antiquity, there was a playwright or a critic. I'm going to get this wrong, but he basically said to the actors – uh, before you can make the audience cry, you, you have to cry first. Like, mm-hmm. you know, all of these are like deeply emotional things, bleeding and, you know, like burying your soul and <laughs> you know, on the typewriter and, and all of that. So, yes. But, but again, the, the AI folks, and I mean, I know them, I respect them, and I understand their argument, believe that, that we just simply 
you know, what's that old quote? Um, good artists copy, great artists steal. That, that's all we're doing is really taking stuff that have been done before and recombining it in different ways. And computers are going to be very good at that. And they're going to make things that are going to be creative. Absolutely. hundred percent. And it's only good things in my perspective about the future of creativity. And I'm glad that you're on board with that. So it really hones in on the fact that science fiction is now science fact. Um, as re- as you're talking, I can't help but think of movies that I've watched about science fiction that really um, are about the present. What are some of your favorite movies that kind of convey your point of view or some movies that you like to watch that think that you feel are the best um, aspects of how we're going to evolve alongside machines? Well, unfortunately, they don't make movies about what I think is going to happen because they would be boring movies. <laughs> You know, everybody is going to be great in the future and get along and have plenty to eat and and achieve their maximum potential. People don't line up. You know, Will Smith doesn't star in that. They don't line up to the door and pay eleven dollars to see that. And I used to get really annoyed by dystopian movies, especially since I have to see them all because invariably people say, oh, my gosh, did you did you see last night's episode of Black Mirror? And I have to say, yes, I saw it because. You know, I and so I have to go see all these movies, and I sit there. I used to do this. I used to sit there thinking, that's not not that's not what's going to happen. You know, so I go see Elysium, and and you know, in the future, everybody's dirty. They're always dirty. That's very interesting, by the way, is that <laughs> 99% of people forget how to bathe. And so they're all dirty and they have backbreaking work. And the 1%, they live in up in the sky in some beautiful place where everything's clean and white and, and dust-free. And, and, and I would watch these movies and think, oh, this is just so. And then I read a quote. Uh, I think it was Frank Herbert who said, sometimes the purpose of science fiction is to keep the future from happening. Mm-hmm. And once I thought of that, I said, aha, okay, these are cautionary tales. Yeah, that's it. These are cautionary tales about what could go wrong. And so now I go to them and think, yeah, this is, this is ridiculous. All this dystopian stuff is ridiculous because it, it breaks with the past. Like things have gotten better for 5,000 years because we've, we've learned how to am- amplify our abilities and they're going to keep getting better. And, but I would say, okay, these are just cautionary tales. And that's how I, that's how I kind of endure it. Byron, you are a breath of fresh air in a dystopian world. (laughs) So where can listeners go to find more about you and your work? Well, um, probably the quickest and easiest place. I'm Byron Reese everywhere. So Twitter, Byron Reese, Facebook, Byron Reese, uh, ByronReese.com. So that's B-Y-R-O-N-R-E-E-S-E. And that's it. Thanks so much for joining me on this podcast, Byron. I had the best time. I would love to come back sometime. You made it to the end of the podcast. This means the world to me, and I hope you enjoyed it. Feel free to hop on over to my podcast website, artofhumanity.io, for show notes or past interviews. Or you can message me on social media. I'm on Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. My name is Jessica Ann, and my handle starts with an I. It's at I-T-S-J-E-S-S-I-C-A-N-N. I'd love to hear from you and learn more about what you've learned from this episode and I'll be sure to get in touch with you. If you really love this podcast, I'd highly appreciate it if you went on iTunes right now and left a review. It helps way more than you know. Let's get the Art of Humanity movement going. Thank you for listening. Until the next episode, evolve your business with the Art of Humanity. Listen, explore, evolve. I'm Jessica Ann.